Jeremiah chapter 40 in your Bibles this evening, please. Be an example. Last time we were together, we witnessed the end of the nation of Israel in 586 B.C. We saw the burning of the city. We saw the humiliation of Zedekiah, though he did indeed go to the land of Babylon in peace. We saw the release of Jeremiah from the prison into the hand of one Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. While it was a dark time for the nation of Judah, it is important to maintain a perspective on it as well. A perspective which is important to maintain, not just as it relates to Judah, but a perspective that is important to maintain in our own lives. While it is true that the nation was going through a time of great sorrow and loss, it was evident from the prophecies of Jeremiah that nothing which was done was ever outside of the control of God. Uh, God did not just throw his hands up and say, okay, you're outside of my control now. You're under the control of Babylon. Much to the contrary, Babylon becomes the servant of the Lord to do his work, to do his will. We are reminded that even in judgment, um, there is an essence of God's faithfulness. God is faithful to judge. We're going to see that particularly come up over the course of of the next couple of weeks. This evening we we come to a very unique portion of Scripture. A time of great upheaval. A vulnerable time in the life of the nation and one which is made even more vulnerable by the events that we're going to study today. This upheaval brought to the forefront actors, evil actors, bad actors, those who were, were eager to bring about their own agendas or their own desires in the midst of the upheaval of the nation. And of course, Jeremiah is right in the middle of it. We're going to cover two chapters of Scripture, perhaps not as ambitious this evening as some other times where we've covered two chapters. But we pick up in chapter 40, beginning in verses 1 through 5, where the Bible tells us this. The word that came to Jeremiah the, uh, from the Lord after that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. When he had taken him, being bound in chains among all that were carried away captive of Jerusalem and Judah, which were carried away captive unto Babylon. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said unto him, The Lord thy God hath pronounced this evil upon this place. Now the Lord hath brought it and done according as he hath said, because ye have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed his voice. Therefore this thing is come upon you. And now behold, I loose thee this day from the chains which were upon thine hand. If it seem good unto thee to come with me into Babylon, come, and I will look well unto thee. But if it seem ill unto thee to come with me into Babylon, forbear. Behold, all the land is before thee, whither it seemeth good and convenient for thee to go, thither go. Now, while he was not yet gone back, he said, Go back also to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon hath made governor over the cities of Judah." And dwell with him among the people, or go wheresoever it seemeth convenient unto thee to go. So the captain of the guard gave him victuals and a reward, and let him go. We talked a little bit last time about the significance of Nebuzaradan and his regard for God's control over the situation, particularly the fact that Nebuchadnezzar mentioned Jeremiah by name, and specifically told the captain of the guard, go find Jeremiah and get him 
Make him well. Get him out of the situation he's in. Make sure that he is well. This is indeed fascinating. And last time we mentioned how it is very possible that this was a side effect, if you will, of the reality that Daniel had been in the land of Babylon, had been ministering to Nebuchadnezzar for any number of years, and that Nebuchadnezzar had had several, perhaps by this point, startling interactions with the godly men of the nation of Judah. We know at the very least he had had the dream. Daniel had interpreted the dream. Daniel had made, been made the chief of the wise men and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azra, and Mishael had been brought along with Daniel into those positions of authority. I surmise that it was possible, perhaps even likely, that Hananiah, Azra, and Mishael had already gone through the fiery furnace by this point though we understood that it was very, very unlikely that Nebuchadnezzar will have had his circumstance of, become, of losing his mind, of becoming as a beast, of coming back to himself when he regards the Lord, and thus, as we would understand it in the Scriptures, regarding God as the Most High God, the God of gods, the King of kings, Lord of lords, and the true and living God. So we are somewhere within the midst of that measure of or that, that set of circumstances we gain a little more insight this week through chapter 40 into Jeremiah's release the captain of the guard was in Ramah this was the same place that Nebuchadnezzar had been when he slew Zedekiah's sons before him when they put out his eyes and then they took him into Babylon so this was kind of their base of operations there in Ramah uh, as far as Babylon is concerned he gave the order for Jeremiah's release uh, re- again, revealing that he knew Jeremiah. He knew the prophecy specifically. He specifically says here, as he talks to Jeremiah, it's your God that has done this. It is your God that pronounced judgment upon the land. It's your God that has given this land into our hands. Nebuchadnezzar makes that very, very clear that he acknowledges God to have given Babylon Judah on the basis of Judah's sin. And he offers Jeremiah the choice. He says, you can come to Babylon with me and it will be well with you and you will be taken care of. He'd go, he'd probably be united with Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael and he'd be very comfortable there for the rest of his life. He says, or you can stay in the land. Well, Jeremiah chooses to stay in the land. And he chooses to stay with this man, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, who had been made the governor of the land underneath the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, before we move on, I want to talk a little bit more about Gedaliah. I want to talk a little bit more about his identity. We have never seen this man mentioned before Jeremiah 39. Last week he came up. Of course, within this very same context of him becoming the governor, we have, however, seen his father come up before. And we've seen his uncle come up before. Over the past month or so, we've referenced the events of Jeremiah 26 pretty regularly. It was this time that Jeremiah was in the temple complex. He was preaching the word of the Lord, and he was almost killed by the the priests and and those who had heard his message that that judgment was coming, that they needed to submit to Babylon, and they nearly killed him. And on that day, there were certain of the people and certain of of the um, scribes who stood up for Jeremiah, the princes and the people, and then there were the priests and the scribes who wanted Jeremiah to be killed for, for treason on that day. And the Bible says that at the end of that controversy, Jeremiah was delivered 
from the hands of those who wanted to kill him by a particular man. And we read about this in verse 24 of Jeremiah 26. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. So Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, stood up for Jeremiah on that day so that Jeremiah would not be killed. Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was the man who delivered Jeremiah on that day from death. Not too long after that, and just before the deportation in 605 B.C., recall Jeremiah was commissioned to write the prophecies in a book. And Baruch read that in the temple. We read about that not too long ago in Jeremiah 36, right? Jeremiah 26 was when he was delivered by Ahikam. In Jeremiah 36, Baruch went into the temple complex. He read the words of God uh, they were heard by various people. Remember, then they were read before the king, and the king cut them up and threw them into the fire after they were read. At that time, as Baruch is reading those words, not only the people, but a group of scribes and princes came together to speak about the words that Jeremiah had written. And they came together in the chamber of a man named Gemariah, the son of Shaphan who was the brother of Ahikam. So we find that the sons of Shaphan were men of God, godly men. And this we might expect from the life of Shaphan himself, who was one of the priests who found in the days of Josiah the scroll in the temple and read him the law, and there was the great revival in the land. Now here we are in Jeremiah 40, and we're probably some 20 years after those events in history, the events of Jeremiah 26, the events of Jeremiah 36, some 20 years later, and now Ahikam's son, Gemariah's nephew, has been chosen by Nebuchadnezzar to govern the poor that remain in the land, to keep the land from becoming untenable, from becoming a wasteland because it's not been kept. And his name, of course, is Gedaliah. He's a man who, like his father, knew and loved the prophet of God. And seeing as though Gedaliah and Ahikam and Gemariah regarded Jeremiah as the prophet of the Lord, and seeing as though Jeremiah has now for several years been preaching a message that says, submit yourself to Babylon and it will be well with you. The judgment's coming. You can do no better than to submit to that judgment. Gedaliah is probably a pretty good person to choose to be governor because he is in consistency with the prophecies of Jeremiah, fully intent on submitting to the rule of Babylon. So we need to keep all of this in our minds. Now we know who Gedaliah is, and we know that he would be determined to submit to the rule of Babylon. All would not be well, however, with this plan. We continue to read verses 6 through 10 of chapter 40. Then went Jeremiah unto Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, to Mitzpah, and dwelt with him among the people that were left in the land. Now when all the captains of the forces which were in the fields, even they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah the son of Ahikam governor in the land, and had committed unto him men and women and children of the poor, and of the poor of the land, of them that were not carried away captive to Babylon, then they came to Gedaliah to Mizpah, even Ishmael the son of Nethaniah and Johanan, and Jonathan, the sons of Kareah, and Saraiah, the son of Tanhumeth, and the sons of Epi, the Netophathite, 
and Jezaniah, the son of, uh, the son, the son of a Maacathite, they and their men. And Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, swear unto them and to their men, saying, Fear not to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. Echoing what Jeremiah has told him, right? Verse 10, As for me, behold, I will dwell at Mizpah to serve the Chaldeans, which will come unto us. But ye, gather ye wine and summer fruits and oil and put them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that ye have taken. So Jeremiah is with Gedaliah. And and as I just mentioned, Gedaliah is observing the commandment of the Lord to submit to the rule of of Babylon over them. Verse 7 tells us that various captains of Judah, these would be men, uh, it would seem, who... They were the captains of forces, right? So they were, they, they were commanders of bands of fighting men. And these captains are coming to Gedaliah, understanding him to be the governor of the land, perhaps to check in with him, perhaps to see what his plan was, whatever the case may be. Among them is a man named Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. Now, Gedaliah welcomes them. And what he does next is he encourages them to settle in the land, to be well with their families, to find rest, but he makes it very clear that his exhortation to them is to submit to Babylon. Submit to Babylon. Go, get, and, and he gives them, the Bible says that he, he, he tells them, gather the wine, gather the summer fruits, gather the oils, put them in your vessels, and dwell in the land. And this is something that God had said, and he will indeed say again as we look over the next couple of weeks. He's telling them, it will be well with you if you submit, if you obey. So he tells the, the, the bands of men this thing. He makes it very clear that he will be a liaison between them and Babylon, but that he is going to serve Babylon. Verses 11 through 16 as we continue. Likewise, when all the Jews that were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and that were in all the countries heard that the king of Babylon had left the remnant of Judah, had left a remnant of Judah, and that he had sent over, set over them Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, even all the Jews returned out of all the places whither they were driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah unto Mizpah, and gathered wine and summer fruits very much. Moreover, Johanan, the son of Kerea, who we already saw, he, him and his brother were both there, and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah to Mizpah, and said unto him, Dost thou certainly know that Baalis, the king of the Ammonites, hath sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to slay thee? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, believed them not. Then Johanan, the son of Kerea, spake to Gedaliah in Mizpah secretly, saying, Let me go, I pray thee, and I will slay Ishmael the son of Nethaniah, and no man shall know it. Wherefore should he slay thee, that all the Jews which are gathered unto thee should be scattered and the remnant in Judah perish? But Gedaliah the son of Ahikam said unto Johanan the son of Kareah, Thou shalt not do this thing, for thou speakest falsely of Ishmael. So we find that various Jews, hearing that the conflict in Babylon was over and that the region had stabilized with a governor, began returning from all of the regions where they had fled. There's no doubt that over the past decade, probably, there had been any number of families that said things are looking bad, they're not going to get any better, and they had gone to places where there was not war. They had gone to places where there was not going to be problems. Uh, they, They had fled from the region where war was 
pending, right? We have seen at this point three deportations. So as far back as 605 BC, uh, people had seen that the writing on the wall, right? And then if any of them believed Babel or believed Jeremiah, they knew that that worse things were coming. So they had fled. They had fled to Ammon. They had fled to Moab. They had gone to these places. And now that, that things are done, right? Jerusalem is in ruins. There's a governor in the land who is friendly with Babylon. They are now comfortable coming back to their homeland and, and finding some semblance of, uh, of settlement. We see that there was wine and summer fruits, that there was a harvest, that they were distributing that among the people, that the captains of the forces were there. They were a part of this distribution. And the Bible tells us that one of these men, Joanan the son of Kareah, along with very other, various other captains and fighting men, they came to Gedaliah. And they came to him in Mitzpah and they warned him that Ishmael was not operating just under his own pretenses. That he was operating under Baalis, the king of the Ammonites, who wanted to see Gedaliah killed. And Joanan had seen the good that Gedaliah's stabilizing influence had had on the land. He had seen that people were returning to the land, that they were getting settled again, that there was stability. He liked that. He was, he was, he was excited about that. And so he warns Gedaliah, he warns him first publicly and then he pulls him aside secretly and, and, he, and he warns him and he says, Ishmael wants you dead. And he specifically requests that Gedaliah would give him leave to secretly go and kill Ishmael, assassinate him. No one would know that it was Gedaliah. No one would, you know, he, his, his reputation could be intact. And all of this to try to maintain a, stabilize, a stabilizing force so that Gedaliah would be well. He offered to remove the threat. Gedaliah refuses to believe that Ishmael would do such a thing. He says, no, I don't believe what you're saying about Ishmael. You're speaking falsely about him. He will not allow Joanan, the son of Kareah, to kill Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. So ends chapter 40. We continue right along in chapter 41, verses 1 through 3. Now it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishema, of the seed royal... And the princes of the king, even ten men with him, came unto Gedaliah the son of Ahikam to Mizpah. And there they did eat bread together in Mizpah. Then arose Ishmael the son of Nethaniah and the ten men that were with him and smote Gedaliah the son of Ahikam the son of Shaphan with the sword and slew him whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Ishmael also slew all the Jews that were with him, even with Gedaliah at Mizpah and the Chaldeans that were found there. And the men of war. So we're in the seventh month. We don't know exactly what this seventh month is. I believe it's likely that this is the seventh month after Gedaliah had begun to become the governor of the land. There's a few other theories as to what the seventh month is. Um, this one makes the most sense to me. And Ishmael, who is said to be of the seed royal, we don't exactly know what that means, other than that presumably he was of some measure of the kingly line in Judah. He had come with ten men to Gedaliah to eat bread together. So he had come and he shared a, a, a table with Gedaliah. And while they were there, Ishmael arose with these ten men and they assassinated Gedaliah and all of the men that were with him, both the Jews and the Babylonians. They killed them all. Now this prompts a question as to motives. Ishmael is specifically said to be of the seed royal. 
We know that he was working somehow with Baalus, the king of the Ammonites. It's quite possible in one sense that there might have been some sort of motive that Ishmael saw perhaps a window by which he might be able to claim some power, claim, claim, claim a right to the throne in Judah and, and, and such. But I think that there's probably a little bit more to it than that. We don't know all of the interpersonal uh, elements here. We don't know why Baalus was involved at all. Maybe Baalus ha- had a vested interest in keeping the region unstable. Maybe he saw an opportunity to conquer it himself. Maybe he saw Israel as the, the, the nearest natural buffer between his nation and Babylon. So that as long as there's rebellion in Judah, Babylon won't be interested in turning their eyes toward Ammon. All of those things are possibilities. But at the very least, it, it seems most likely to me that Ishmael was not on board with Gedaliah aligning himself with Babylon. He was not on board with Gedaliah saying, we will serve Babylon. Most likely, in a fit of nationalistic zeal, he was incensed that a Jewish governor would just willingly put himself underneath Babylon's power without fighting back. One way or another, Ishmael kills them all as Joanon had warned Gedaliah would happen. Verses 4 through 7. And it came to pass in the second day after he had slain Gedaliah, and no man knew it, that there came certain from Shechem, from Shiloh, and from Samaria, even fourscore men, having their beards shaven and their clothes rent, and having cut themselves with offerings and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, went forth from Mizpah to meet them, weeping all along as he went. And it came to pass, as he met them, he said unto them, Come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And it was so, when they came into the midst of the city, that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, slew them, and cast them into the midst of the pit, he and the men that were with him. So two days later, no one knows yet that Gedaliah and and the the men of Mizpah have been killed. Ishmael is, is still there, he's still in Mizpah. And then there's a group of 80 men who come, and the Bible tells us that they come from Shechem, from Shiloh, and from Samaria. And they had, their sh- they had shaved their beards, they had rent their clothes, and they had cut themselves. Now, two of the three of those are very Jewish in orientation. The idea of shaving one's beard and of rending one's clothes, these are Jewish signs of mourning. The idea of cutting themselves is not Jewish. As a matter of fact, it's explicitly prohibited in the law for them to mark their skin or to cut their skin To that extent here, we would understand that there were also here those of Samaria, those of the north, right? That had been that area that at this point about 200 years previous had been conquered by the Assyrians. And there had been an intermingling between the Assyrians and the northern Israelites. And they had created a group of people called the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were a group of people who had a very mixed worship system. Some of Assyria, of course, some of the pagan calf worship going all the way back to Jeroboam, and then some of the worship of Jehovah that was rooted in the temple and rooted in the traditions there. So there was a very mixed system. Would not surprise us that these men had not just shaved their beards and rent their clothes, but also had cut themselves in the fashion of the pagans. 
And we don't exactly know what they're mourning about here. They hear perhaps of the destruction, the captivity of Judah, and they come to Mizpah where Gedaliah is with offerings and incense. Two possibilities there. The first possibility, perhaps more possibilities, but, but, but two possible explanations for them coming to Mizpah with these offerings and these incense is first that they had gone with the intention of going to the temple. They had traveled with the intention of traveling to the temple. They found it in ruins. They divert themselves, having had these offerings that they intended to bring to the temple. They divert themselves to Mizpah knowing that the governor's there to explain some things. Second, possibly... Gedaliah had erected a temporary tabernacle in Mizpah since the temple was destroyed out of which they were operating in some manner of worship system so these men were coming in mourning because the temple was destroyed to worship in Mizpah. One way or another, what we know is that they're coming to Mizpah and and they're coming to find Gedaliah. Ishmael hears of this and he goes out to meet them and he goes out under false pretenses. He's crying. He says, come meet Gedaliah. Come talk to Gedaliah. Gedaliah has been dead for two days. So these 80 men follow him to Mizpah and they kill them, the Bible says, and they cast them into a pit. Not all of them, though. They only kill 70 of them. We continue reading in verses 8 through 10. But 10 men were found among them that said unto Ishmael, Slay us not, for we have treasures in the field of wheat and of barley and of oil and of honey. So he forbear and slew them not among their brethren. Now the pit wherein Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Gedaliah was it which Asa the king had made for fear of Baasha the king of Israel and Ishmael the son of Nethaniah filled it with them that were slain. Then Ishmael carried away captive all the residue of the people that were in Mizpah, even the king's daughters and all the people that remained in Mizpah, whom Nebuzar Adan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, and Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, carried them away captive and departed to go over to the Ammonites. So Ishmael only killed 70 of the 80. The other 10 convinced Ishmael that they were so wealthy and that they had so much wealth in store that if he spared them, that, that they could become, that he, Ishmael, could become recipients of their wealth. So he chose not to kill them. And the Bible says that they threw the rest of the bodies into this pit, which is called the pit. And then Jeremiah explains here was a pit that Asa had built in the days of Baasha, king of Israel. In the days of Baasha, king of Israel, Asa went through a major process of fortifying the cities of Israel, of Judah fortifying them against Baasha. And so Asa was one of those, those kings who heavily fortified the cities of Israel. And one of the cities that he heavily fortified was Mizpah. And it's quite possible that a part of what um, Asa built was some sort of moat or, or uh, some sort of pit that was deep in front of the walls to create a higher uh, system or a higher structure over which armies would have to, to get past. And it was into a pit that Asa had made as he fortified those cities that all of the bodies of these dead men were thrown. And then the Bible says that, that Ishmael took captive all of the others that were there in Mizpah, the king's daughters who had been left under Gedaliah's charge, the other people, and then presumably Jeremiah as well, right? As he was left under Gedaliah's charge. All of these were then taken captive by Ishmael, and Ishmael was going to bring them all back to Ammon, to Baalis, the king of the Ammonites. Things don't go as planned for him either, though. So we continue in verses 11 through 15. But when Johanan, the son of Kareah, 
And all the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done. Then they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and found him by the great waters that are in Gibeon. Now it came to pass that when all the people that were with uh, which were with Ishmael, saw Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were with him. Then they were glad. So all the people of, uh, that Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah cast about and returned and went unto Johanan, the son of Korea. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. So Johanan hears of what Ishmael has done, as well as the other captains of the forces, his brother being one of those, as we've talked about, perhaps some other captains as well. They're angry. Remember, Johanan is the guy that had warned Gedaliah that this was going to happen and had offered to assassinate Ishmael. So Johanan now gathers his own men. He chases after Ishmael. They find them by the waters in Gibeon. And when the captives see Johanan, they immediately turn from Ishmael and they run. Now, what this reminds us is that Ishmael did not have a very large force here. We know that Ishmael had at least 10 men. But he must not have had a large enough force to actually stop a crowd. Because as soon as these people see Joanon coming, they turn and they say, we're running to him. And Ishmael has very little power to do anything about it. There is perhaps some battle, minor though it may be, Ishmael and eight men escape. Now we know that he had at least 10 men initially. Ishmael and eight of them escape to Ammon. Everyone else is now with Joanon. They've been rescued from this, this captivity. Jeremiah, of course, being included in that group. This whole situation, however, brought about a very unfortunate circumstance. And it's going to lay the groundwork for what we're going to read over the next several weeks in chapters 42 and 43. The very thing that Johanan had feared. Remember, he had seen how the people were coming back from Ammon and from Moab because of the stabilizing influence of Gedaliah. And now we're going to watch that crumble because they don't have a leader any longer. So we read in verses 16 through 18. As we finish the chapter, then took Joanan the son of Kerea, uh, and all the captains of the forces that were with him, and all the remnants of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael the son of Nethaniah, from Mizpah. After that, he had slain Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, even mighty men of war, and the women, and the children, and the eunuchs whom he had brought again from Gibeon, and they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Kimham which is by Bethlehem, to go to enter into Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them. Because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had slain Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon made governor in the land. So Gedaliah is dead. The people no longer have an anchor, but they're also afraid. They're afraid that Babylon's going to come back. They're going to find dead Babylonians in that pit. And they're, going, they're afraid that that's just going to start everything up again. And that Babylon's going to get angry and they're going to start killing people. And they're going to start killing people because eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They, the, the leader that was appointed, this, this, this Babylonian friendly man, this man who was willing to submit, he's dead. The Babylonians that were left there to, to, you know, to, to, to keep order, they're dead. Now they're afraid again. And so they go to a place called Kimham, 
which is near Bethlehem, and they start to talk about going into Egypt, fleeing from the land to go find peace, to go find um, safety. And this is the, the groundwork for what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. The debate about Egypt. And it's going to reveal some things about the character of the remnant in Judah that we're going to get to learn some lessons from, but that will, will be somewhat discouraging to us. But as we walk through these two chapters, and particularly as we consider this conclusion here in chapter 41, the only, the, the, the topic that really bubbled up to the surface in my mind, the burden that was on my heart as I read these words, as I studied through this passage, was leadership. I don't know why it was that Gedaliah made the choices he made as it related to Ishmael. I can think of any number of reasons why he didn't want Ishmael to die. Maybe he truly trusted that Ishmael would not hurt him. Maybe there had just been so much death and suffering and bloodshed that Gedaliah thought, it's not, this is not the way. We don't need more people dying on this day. To this end, I cannot and I will not speak to whether or not Gedaliah made the wrong decision. I don't know. I don't know all of the factors involved in this decision. But the decision that Gedaliah made here, not the fact that he didn't want Ishmael assassinated, that's, that's good, but the decision that he made to put his life on the line had serious consequences, didn't it? And not just for him. And whether or not we regard Gedaliah himself and his decision as right or wrong, as good or bad, as proper or improper, obviously the decision got him killed, so that's not good. But I don't know that Ishmael being killed would have necessarily been much better of a decision. It would have had some serious... It would have saved a lot of consequences, though, wouldn't it? as it relates to the people in the land, as it relates to the stabilization of the land. Something very important happened when Gedaliah died. The people lost their will to submit. The people began to be led again by fear rather than by confident comfort. They began to get scattered and fearful rather than united and trusting. Gedaliah was a man who trusted the prophet of God. And as he followed the prophet of God, the people were willing to follow him. When he died, there was no one left to stand in that gap and follow the prophet of God. And we're going to see the consequences of that next week. But I want us to think about that just on a practical level. Just one, one point this evening of application, one thing to think about. And again, there's go, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a stretch application this evening. I'm not trying to de derive this directly from the text. This is just derived from my musings about the consequences of Gedaliah dying and a reminder about testimony and leadership. The point I want to make is this. 
your godly testimony and leadership might make all the difference in the lives of others. We all know from scriptures how important leadership is among we who are ordained leaders. I speak to the men of this church. I speak to the fathers in this church. And I say, God has ordained you fathers to lead your families. You need to lead them with confidence and with strength. Speak to the men of the church and say, if we don't give women a, a need to rise up and to lead, if we take the, have the initiative and have the character to lead in this church, it, it will be well for this church. That will be a good thing for this church, that the men stand up, that the men take initiative, that the men lead, that we're not afraid to do so. Speak of ministers, that ministers, a man that stands behind this pulpit, myself, not being afraid to, to lead by example, to say the hard things, to do what is necessary. Yes, it's important that, that those who are ordained leaders lead, government officials, that they lead. We all know the extent to which choices have consequences. And we all know the extent to which those, uh, the, the choices of leaders have consequences upon them. James chapter 3 warns the church to be not many teachers, many masters, knowing they, knowing they shall receive the greater condemnation. We see how Moses led the nation of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, only to be denied the promised land because of a singular failure the second time when he chose to smite the rock again rather than speaking to the rock as God commanded. But we also must acknowledge that the tremendous effects that leaders have and the consequences of leaders' decisions don't just fall on them. It falls on those who follow. We need to remember this, that the consequences of the choices that leaders make don't just fall on them. It, those consequences fall on those who follow them. The scriptures give general principles to this effect, and we can talk about specifics. We could go to Moses we could go to David, David's sin with Bathsheba. We can go to David in 2 Samuel 24 when he chose to number the people and God gave David the choice of three different consequences. And the consequence that David chose meant thousands in Israel died. Thousands. Because David, as the king, chose to number the people. We read in Proverbs 29, verse 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. We understand that there is a direct correlation between leaders' choices and consequences upon others. And here we find another example. Again, whether or not Gedaliah made the right choice or the wrong choice here, the right decision, the wrong decision, what cannot be denied is that he functioned in post-captivity Judah first to stabilize the land, a stabilizing influence in the land, to keep the people calm, focused, and encouraged. Second, and more importantly, though, he directed the people to be willing to listen to the prophet of God, to submit to Babylon. He believed the word of the Lord. He was determined that they were going to follow the word of the Lord. And when those two things were combined, what it meant is that Gedaliah's leadership led the people into obedience through his obedience. And when he died, 
We're going to see it beginning next time. Everything changes and not for the better. The people become fearful, scattered, and disobedient. And not just disobedient, but they become hardened, rebellious, determined to disobey the Lord. Don't discount the capacity of a leader to affect change in the hearts of his followers. And at this point, I want to broaden our context here. We speak of fathers and ministers and bosses, designated leaders, and we know well from Scripture both their responsibility and their accountability, but this isn't just about designated leaders. As a born-again believer in an unbelieving world, you will never know just how much your moral leadership in any given situation can impact others. You may never understand how much your decision simply to stand, we sang that song tonight, stand up, stand up for Jesus, how much your decision to simply stand in the day of adversity, to simply stand in the day of temptation, you will never know how much your decision simply to stand might mean for somebody else who's watching and who's just waiting for the courage, for someone to guide them into obedience. Maybe another Christian who does lack the courage or the conviction or the maturity in their life to do what's right. But if they just had one person to stand up and say, follow me as I follow Christ, they'd be right at your heels. Maybe it's an unbeliever who's seeking to the truth and they're just looking for that one consistent believer. They're just looking for that one person who, when push comes to shove says, I'm going to do what's right. And they say, you know what? I want that. How can I get that too? And your moral leadership might just mean the difference between another person making the right choice or them making the wrong choice. Perhaps you've experienced this in your own life. You can think back to someone who maybe was or, or was not officially a leader over you, but their presence, their consistency, their testimony, them even simply being a solid rock, a stabilizing force made a huge difference in the direction of your life. Or maybe you can look back and see how the lack thereof made a difference in your life. This was Gedaliah, and we can see that very clearly from the outside looking in. When he died, you're going to see it particularly over the next few chapters, the remnant fell apart. Not because there was some, he was some great charismatic born leader type, but because he was a consistent, stable, godly source of direction among a people who needed exactly that. And again, whether or not he made the right or wrong decision in, with Ishmael, what is clear is that when Gedaliah risked his life by putting his faith in Ishmael, he wasn't just risking his own life, but he was, whether he knew it or not, risking the stability of the remnant of God's people. To be honest, I don't know fully who this application goes out to today. Maybe it's that sibling who doesn't think of himself or herself as a leader among your other siblings, but you have a younger sibling who looks up to you, who watches you, who respects you deeply. And you need to know, sibling, that your decisions aren't just affecting you. 
You need to know that you have younger siblings who are looking up to you, who respect you, and who might just make spiritual decisions in their lives on the basis of the spiritual decisions you're making in your life. Maybe I'm speaking to a father who needs to realize that your decisions, your actions, the way you treat your wife, the way you respond to your children, the way you, uh, the way you handle the authorities in your life, your boss, uh, the civil authorities, the government, is having an impact on those that are looking up to you. Maybe the application goes out to this pastor who needs to be reminded of how much my personal life my decisions affect those who are in this church. Maybe it's just a Christian friend or coworker who doesn't have any particular position of leadership, but your testimony, your life has become something that someone else is looking to. And if you crumble, they very well might too. And you need to know that your godly testimony, your leadership in whatever capacity you have it, can make a huge difference in the lives of others. The Christian church is one long chain. We, we, have a, we, we follow a string, a testimony that traces all the way back to Jesus Christ. Then to those 120 in the upper room. Then to the thousands saved on Pentecost then spreading throughout the world in an unbroken line from generation to generation. We form the link in a chain of testimony that goes back to our Savior who prayed for us in John 17, who prayed this exact thing for us in John 17, that we would be one as He is one with His Father. That we would bear fruit, that, the Lord, that, that, that His Father would keep us from evil. And Gedaliah is a reminder that as simply a part in a chain, as a part of the link, something's holding on to us and we're holding on to something else. We are bound together. Our actions, our testimony has consequences beyond just ourselves. And we can make a huge difference in the lives of others. Now, you're not responsible for the decisions other people make. I'm not saying here today that if, if you make a wrong decision and then someone else makes a wrong decision, that you're accountable for their wrong decision. That's not what I'm saying. Every person makes their own decisions. Just because your pastor fails doesn't mean you have to go off the rails. Right? If, if I were to fail and you were to go off the rails, that would be your decision. But there would be an, there would be an irrefutable link if my failure was a catalyst for yours. And that's what we're saying here. The exhortation thus this evening is unto faithfulness. Every man and woman will make his own decisions in this life. You are not responsible for other people's decisions. But if your example can make a difference in the life of another, if your leadership can make a difference in the life of another, then it would behoove us to wake up in the morning understanding that your day is not just about you. 
that your spiritual walk is not just about you, that your decisions are not just about you. And God forbid that we should fall short of being that example of leadership, of having that godly testimony that can make a true difference in the life of someone else. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.